0: love public swimming pools. I always have. Some of my best memories as a child, as a youth, as a parent, take place at swimming pools. I love everything about them. I, I love the smell, chlorine, sunscreen. I love the sounds, splashing, laughter, or the occasional walk, don't run. And I admit, I have never given much thought to the history of public swimming pools until recently when I listened to a podcast called The Some of Us, hosted by Heather McGee. She's written a book of the same title. Uh, McGee is a lawyer and an economist, and she begins both her podcast and book by exploring the history of public pools in the United States. So in the 1930s and and the 1940s, the United States went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities um, funded by tax dollars. And that included beautiful public pools Uh, in many a community. uh, These pools were the centerpiece, the the pride and joy of that community. Take Montgomery, Alabama. Um, They built uh, the Oak Park Pool, and it was the grandest, most beautiful pool for miles around. It was the gathering place for everyone in that community. Well, not everyone. Um, It was, although that pool was was funded by all of the town's citizens, um, it was for whites only. Well, in 1958, a federal court um, finally uh, deemed segregated public pools unconstitutional. And it didn't take the Montgomery City Council long to act. Uh, Effective January 1st, 1959, uh, they decided they would drain the Oak Park pool rather than let black families swim in it. Um, The pool was drained closed, covered over with cement. Now, this decision was replicated across towns um, all, over the, all over the United States and not just in the South. Um, cities closed their public parks, pools, schools uh, throughout the 1960s, all in response uh, to uh, desegregation orders. Uh, the city of Montgomery shut down the entire Parks Department for a decade, They closed the recreation centers. They even sold off the animals in the zoo. The Oak Park Pool was never rebuilt, which means no one of any race swam there after 1959. Put another way, racism costs everyone. Um, As it turns out, racism is bad for white people, too. That's the point Heather McGee is making in her podcast and book. And she's trying to understand um, why it is that we so often work against our best self-interest. Why we would deny ourselves good things rather than share them with others. Where does this thinking come from? It's zero-sum thinking. Um, If you get ahead, that means I must lose something. Something. Progress for people of color will come at the expense of white people. Welcoming immigrants into our community will mean less for those of us who've been here for a while. Zero-sum thinking. This last election cycle was dominated by zero-sum thinking on both sides of the aisle because we are all susceptible to this kind of thinking. It's rooted in this idea that there just isn't enough to go around. Why do we believe that? When did we first learn that? Was it when our parents brought our kid brother home from the hospital and and we realized we had to share our parents' love and energy with him? Was it the first time we were told, no, uh, you can't have another piece of candy, you can't stay up one more hour? When did we first learn that there isn't enough? Well, it wasn't in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 tells of a God so generous that God's very word brings new things into being. Um, God creates flowers, trees, plants, continents, people, animals, everything, and the refrain is, it is good. The Bible, the Bible is all about abundance, um, And yet, so much of our lives are ruled by a notion of scarcity. What is the first thing so many of us do when we hear of an impending snowstorm, hurricane, pandemic? Oh, we run to the store. We stock up. We empty the shelves, terrified that there won't be enough to go around. When did we first learn that there wasn't enough? Well, it wasn't from the Bible. And... This morning, um, I'm reminded it wasn't from the experience of the early church. I'll get back to that in a minute. But first, I, I want to return to Heather McGee. Um, her podcast and book are, are not depressing. On the contrary, deeply hopeful. Because she is interested in exploring the flip side to draining the pool. Something she calls the solidarity dividend. Um Uh, The solidarity solidarity dividend, uh, this is gains made when people come together across race and other divisions. Uh, She had traveled the country in search of stories about this solidarity dividend. Um, One example uh, that she shares uh, is the success of the Fight for 15 movement. Um, This movement began in 2012 when fast food workers in New York City walked off the job uh, to protest their $7.25 minimum wage um, and to push for a $15 minimum. The movement quickly spread across the nation. And by 2014, Seattle became the first city to uh, adopt this norm. And the movement, which had started out primarily um, with black and brown folks, um, gradually became a cross-racial movement um, and had great success uh, in changing um, standards for the minimum wage, um, including um, having some companies like Amazon, McDonald's, Walmart adopt the $15 uh, minimum wage regardless of what local uh, states and municipalities were doing. As a result, 22 million low-paid workers, the majority of them white, benefited from an additional $68 billion in increased wages. That's the solidarity dividend. Now, in her book and podcast, McGee focuses on race, But the solidarity dividend applies to cooperation across other differences, Um, political party affiliation, gender, religion, class. It's time now to to talk about the early church. Um, uh, The early church was born and and grew out of uh, a a zero sum world, Um, a, a place Uh, that was defined by uh, people sticking to their own kind, of not crossing um, divides. Uh, In in the Greco-Roman world, um, you stuck with your own. You stuck with your own ethnic group, your own religion and gender. And you were in clubs and guilds with people of the same social and economic status. Uh, So if asked, who are you? Someone might have answered, oh, I am a middle-aged, Greek-speaking, Jewish shopkeeper from Corinth, and I am in a guild with other middle-aged, Greek-speaking, Jewish male shopkeepers from Corinth just like me. And then along comes Paul and the early followers of Jesus, and they throw everyone in together, men and women, young and old, Jewish and pagan, slave, free, peasant, aristocrat. In this new community, they decide there's not going to be an us and a them, for you are all one, they say. Now note, they don't say we are all the same. Now sameness isn't the point. The point is oneness, solidarity that transcends race, gender, religion, class. Oh, it's a bold. Experiment, bringing all these different kinds of people together. Um, the early church communities are all about the solidarity dividend, A- and and what they create is is beautiful. You can hear it in, in the reading from Romans. I, I have to say, every time I I, I hear these words um, uh, written by Paul to to one of these early church communities. Um, Something in me quickens. Ah, I want more of what they're talking about. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Oh, I love the beauty of those words and the beauty of what they are describing and invite us to imagine. I want that for us, for this nation. Now, now, keep in mind, the early church actually never fully pulled it off. Um, the words, these words of Paul are aspirational. But these early church communities, they tried. Oh, they worked on it. They kept working on it. We, we need to work on it, too. Because zero-sum thinking, it doesn't work. It's never worked. It never will work. And it costs all of us. It leads to drained pools, broken families, dysfunctional institution. Oh, it doesn't work in our extended families, in our communities, in our nation. The solidarity dividend, on the other hand, it's real. Quantifiable. Quantitatively and qualitatively. One last Heather McGee story from her journey across the country. Quote, I went to Maine, the whitest state in the nation, the oldest, where there are more deaths every year than births. And I went to this dying mill town called Lewiston that is being revitalized by new people, mostly African, mostly Muslim, immigrants and refugees. There I met a woman named Cecile, whose parents had been part of the last wave of new people to come to Lewiston, Maine. These are French-Canadian mill workers, whose ancestors arrived at the turn of the century. Cecile is retired, but she's found a new purpose in life by organizing Congolese refugees to join with the white retirees at the Franco Heritage Center. These men and women from the Congo, all French speakers, are helping these retirees remember their French, that they haven't spoken since their childhoods, and together, these two communities help each other feel at home. McGee continues You know, for all the talk about the newcomers being a drain on the town, a bipartisan think tank found that the local refugee community there in Lewiston created $40 million in tax revenue and $130 million in income. That's the solidarity dividend. It's real. And it makes life better for everyone. And it's our story. The story of the people of God. It is who we are as followers of Jesus, as descendants of Paul and the early church. We aren't all the same. But we are one. We are one. One body one human family, because of God's love for us, because of God's claim on us, God's insistence that we belong to one another. We are connected to one another, part of the same body, all children of God. We are not the same. We are one. Amen.